So, Father, as we begin to dive into your word today, looking through the lens of the perspective that you desire for your church to have, living in light of eternity, I pray that through the guidance of your spirit that you will open up each of our hearts to a new perspective, and that having seen a new perspective, that you would lead and guide us in all of those things. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. One of the joys that we have had in this series, but is this as loud out there as it is up here? Could we just bring that down? Because I know I'm going to get louder as the day goes on. I'm just on the runway. One of the joys that we have had over these past several weeks is a chance to get to know different people that are part of our church through video. And I would like you to turn your eyes to the screen as we meet this wonderful family. Hi, I'm Larry Coots. And I'm Elaine Coots, and this is our story. We've been attending Grace approximately six or seven years now. Originally, I grew up in the church. I had the pleasure of uh, knowing uh, Pastor Doug and Cindy DeMatt when their children were quite young in another church. And it's like we hadn't seen each other in like years, I mean like 20 years. And I just was so excited to see them and I couldn't wait to see her husband uh, and then she says, well, yes, you know, he's right over there. And I said, oh, I can't believe it. You guys go to Grace. And he started laughing. I said, what? What? He says, well, I'm the pastor here. And I said, oh, my God, Larry, this is so exciting. You have to hear Pastor Doug preach. You have to hear him. We both have been involved in it now retired from the law enforcement community. Larry out on uh, the streets and, and patrol, but myself... Uh, I had a captive audience. I used to work behind four walls in the uh, ja local jail downtown uh, for the sheriff's department. So um, that was my mission field for almost 42 years. And the best thing about being there, and I do miss it, is you have to have a heart for people, uh, no matter all shapes, sizes, and color. You have to love them. You see the worst of the people and, and where they've come from, and you know that you, f you feel bad for them because you know that their only hope would be Jesus. I think when you're engaged uh, in a surrounding of loving, caring people that have the same heart as you do, you're not afraid. Of course, ooh, I was never afraid to share Jesus whenever the door is open during COVID. Um, I was still working, and they asked about making sure that all the religious services were provided. And did I know anybody? And I said, hmm, Pastor Doug would be perfect preacher to televise and send the messages into the jail every week. And the county gave its blessing, and uh, not only were the inmates uh, allowed to partake in that service every Saturday, but you also had officers that were listening to what Pastor Doug and Grace Assembly had to preach about, and it was good, good Jesus, great Jesus, awesome Jesus, amen. What I see for the new location is that we're moving into a more centralized location. You have neighborhoods and communities that surround our new building. Thousands of cars go by every week. They'll be able to see what's there. It's not an empty building anymore. 
We have a, um, a lot of activity throughout the week. It's not just on a Sunday. We give to Grace um, not just our time, but our talents and also our finances. Um, it's a big trust for, for a lot of people. Um, I know that when you take a step of faith, God provides. He will provide. There is no doubt. Um, but he also wants us to be good stewards, too, because the money, everything that we have belongs to him. It's because we have it because he has given it to us. I like seeing what's being invested with our, our youth now and the younger generations because I see the enthusiasm that the kids have. They can't wait to get in there. And I see that the, the leaders, the youth leaders that we have there, they do so much for these kids and the kids actually connect with them and they become almost like part of the family. It's, it's all the family of God. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have great leaders there. That's where Grace excels because we have people that care for others, regardless of who they are. The message is still strong, that it's Jesus. We are the Kootzes, and we thank you for letting us share our story with you. Give them a round of applause. How many of you love statistics? Eighteen. You're going to love this. According to LifeWay Research, the day in which we live right now, 80% of the churches in America are plateaued or declining. 4,500 churches in the U.S. die every year. That's 148 a month or 12 every day. The population of our world is 8.4 billion people and is expected to grow to 9.8 billion by 2050. Our world is growing at an astronomical rate, and the gospel proclamation centers are dwindling and dying. In a 10-year period, the combined membership of all Protestant denominations in the U.S. declined by almost 5 million members, or 9.5%, and at the same time, the U.S. population increased by 24 million, or 11%. For those of you that still have your booklets, would you just wave it so that I can congratulate you on not losing it? I am impressed. You can turn in your booklet and you'll discover that there are some pages that has different statistics on it as it relates to what is going on in our area, and I would encourage you to be familiar with that and take a look at that. In light of the declining gospel influence, we look at the promises of God who says, I plan to give you a hope and a glorious future, and we look at that and say, what does a hope and a glorious future look like to us? Every day, you probably use a word more than once. It's a very small word, but we use it often, and it's the word hope. It is tough to live or even make it through one day without hope. We say things like, I hope you feel better. I hope you have a healthy baby. I hope you get an A in that class. I hope she likes me. I hope he likes me. Or we talk to our students and they say, I hope that somehow in my life I will make a difference in the world. Or I hope their marriage makes it. Or I hope I get a raise. What is hope? Based on these examples that I just gave and the biblical text, we define hope like this. And for those of you jotting things down in the outline that is provided for you in your book, I would have you encouraged to jot this down. Hope is a vision for better days in the future 
that changes us in the present. Hope is a vision for better days in the future that changes us in the present. In other words, there's something just ahead. There's something just around the corner. There's something just out of sight, and it's good. And that good future isn't just abstract, but it reaches and it transforms the way that we live in the present, knowing what is coming. So, for example, the way things change you in the future, knowing something is coming, is this, for those of you that are still students. If you're hoping for an A in your class at least you should, be motivated to study to prepare yourself to get an A. So the hope is supplemented by what you do right now. Or if you are hoping for a raise at the company you work for, then you need to make yourself an invaluable employee to that company and to your employer so that when the time comes, they will recognize that they can't do this without you. Or if you're hoping for peace in your family, stop yelling in the house. And it might help. Or, as it relates to us at Grace Assembly, if I hope to see a glorious future for Grace Assembly, then I will participate fully in obedience to the way that God is leading me and my family to participate in the great Sunday celebration that we are going to have next week. Last Sunday night, we had a Lead the Way banquet. And all of our pastors, our deacons, our elders, our department heads, and many of the influences of our church came together because we wanted to lead the way in setting the pledge for the way that this campaign would go. And I am overjoyed to announce that our leaders in this church pledged over $600,000 to this campaign. That is what I call leading the way, and I'm grateful for that. One of the stories that I shared last Sunday night and I want to share with you today is recently I was standing in the living room of a home of a man whose wife had died. He doesn't go to this church. He was asking me questions about what's happening here and I was explaining how God has opened doors and, and not just provided one building but two buildings. And after talking to him and answering some of his questions, he said, can you just stay here for a moment? And he disappeared into his bedroom. A few minutes later, he came back out and had a small bag in his hand, and he said, I want to contribute to a glorious future. The story continues. I'm so impressed with what God is doing there, so please take this and, and use its value for what God wants to do. And I opened up the bag, and I poured it out, and in that bag was his wedding ring and the diamond wedding ring of his wife that had passed away. And he said to me, he says, I can think of nothing more important than the symbol of our love that God had given to us being sold to use to be the symbol of the love of Jesus Christ for the world. He said, I believe with all of my heart that if she were here today that this is exactly what she would want to be done with these rings. A week and a half ago, Cindy and I took them and we went to a jeweler downtown that we know and know well. And as we begin to explain to him what had happened, not only did he give us a good price for those, but he says, I'm I have to give you a little extra just because of what's taking place here. So I want you to know that God is doing some things in some miraculous ways as it relates to provision. Just this week I had a conversation with a family and I asked their permission if I could tell this story. They said, yes, but don't use our names. Young couple that had been saving money because they wanted to create a, a nice sum of money so that they could have a deposit for a new home. He said, in the middle of all of this, the things that have been taking place with my wife and I as we begin discussing what it would look like to take that sum that we have saved and give that 
into a glorious future. And he said, we've come to discover that God was asking us to invest in building His house first and that He would take care of the rest later. And the deposit that they've been saving for for years will be given next week in our glorious future celebration Sunday. I know that God is up to something as He begins to talk to us about unique vision for what He wants to do. And so in John 4.35, which is the text for this morning, which will allow me to launch for just a few minutes into some points I want you to have, Jesus says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. The first point that I would like you to jot down today is this. Hope changes us in the present. Hope changes us right now. Hope is about a promise and a person. Now, all of us can look at this, and it sounds very academic until we we get to that last part in the Scripture that says that it changes us in the present, that there's something about the, the hope that we have in Christ that does something in us right now. Because once you start down the pathway of hope, there's no turning back. Hope is contagious. How many of you know that? I love being around hopeful people because it just invades and leeches into our personalities. Let me put it this way. Hope will ruin your life because once you start hoping, you become vulnerable. Once you start hoping, your heart starts to burst with longing because now you have something you want and hope will turn your life upside down as you are anticipating the way God is going to bring it about. We are experiencing that as we hope for our new ministry campus. I can hear it in your conversations. I I hear it every week in the way that people talk to me, the expectancy that we have, the way that you pray, the way that you know that God is going to provide for this huge step of faith that you and your family are prepared to take as you feel Him leading you in this next week for what He wants you to do. Hope is good. Hope gives your heartbeat something to pound for with wild enthusiasm. Hope opens your life to more joy and delight and adventure than you ever thought possible. And how many of you know that our God is not a safe God? He loves leading us in adventure. Hope will also open your heart to ache because there is aching in the waiting and the longing for hope to come to pass. In some ways, Life would have been much simpler for us as a group of people and as a church if we'd have just said, we're just fine here. You know, we're happy with this. We don't need to expand. We don't need a greater influence for God or for our church in a new building. It would have been easy to say, I'm content. I can just sit here in this building. It's familiar. We've come to know it. And there is no walk of faith that is required to stay here. But now we have hope that the possibilities of what God is designing for us in the future, if we will walk in obedience, the beautiful picture He's designing, it's coming, and we know it's coming. We're watching it happen, and our hearts are beating with enthusiasm. But He says to each of us, now I need you to prepare for it. Here's what I'd like you to jot down. For the follower of Jesus, hope always depends on the reality of the one who's making the promises. For the follower of Jesus, hope always depends on the reality of the one who is making the promises. Hope is never based on wishful thinking. It is never based on just positive feelings or even how much faith you may have. 
Our hope today is based on the reality that God is here, that his presence is here, that he is leading and he is guiding, and that we will get the benefit, but he's going to get the glory from the hope that he is placing in the heart of each and every one of us. And so we know because he is trustworthy that what he gives us hope in, he is able to provide. And Grace Assembly, listen to me. This is one of our statements. We are a community of hope. I spoke to somebody this morning as they were walking out of the first service, and she said to me, I had been attending a church where I felt like there was no hope, and she says, the first time I walked in here three weeks ago, instantly, for the first time, I felt hopeful. I said, that's the life of God among his people in a place. We are a community of hope, and we get the joy of welcoming people home. Secondly, hope will change your view of the harvest. Our text says, do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you to open your eyes and look at the fields. My prayer during this time has been this. God, would you help us to open our eyes and see what you want us to see. Help us to see things as you see them through your eyes. How many of you know perspective is everything? It's everything. One of the most famous motivational stories on the entrepreneurial circuit is that there were two salesmen from competing companies who were sent to foreign countries to assess the possibility of the market for shoes. One of the salesmen went Scouts around for a few days, heads to the office to contact the company, and he writes this, my research is complete, unmitigated disaster, nobody here wears shoes. The second salesman does his research, heads for the office, sends back a message to his headquarters that says, research complete, glorious opportunity, there's not a single person here that has a pair of shoes. The point is, of course... It is with the perspective that we look that we see opportunity where others do not. It's a story designed to motivate us to open our eyes through the Spirit to see what the Spirit wants us to see. You say, Pastor, why is that important? Let me bring this home for us. Many of you have heard me tell this, but according to a study done by the American Bible Society a few years ago, Syracuse, New York, is one of the 15 least Bible-minded cities in the nation. Time Magazine reports Bible-mindedness as defined by how respondents read the Bible or how accurately they think the book is. This data was based on personal interviews and telephone conversations in a nationwide sample. And of the bottom 15 in the nation, here's what happened. Albany was number 99. Buffalo was number 95, New York City was 89, and Syracuse was 86. It indicates to us what many people believe, and that is upstate New York is a spiritual graveyard. Dan McLaughlin is the secretary treasurer of our network, and he keeps track of how many ministers are transferring out of New York to go to other places and how many are coming in. It's an alarming trend to us in the ministry to see how many people are leaving here because the opportunities are greater somewhere else or because it looks like a spiritual graveyard here. I want you to understand something. I see things differently. I see this as an opportunity. I see this as a place where God has planted you and I for such a time as this, 
that in the middle of great need comes great grace. In fact, the Scripture tells us where sin is increased, grace increases even more. I want people that are living in this city to come to a recognition that if they ever do another series like this again in the future, Syracuse will have changed because of a revival that breaks out because the people here begin to recognize that there may be darkness, but we know the one who is the giver of light, and he's the giver of hope. And we can speak to the hopelessness of this generation and of this city. Are there challenges? Yes. Are there concerns? Yes. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Romans 10, 13 through 14 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them. This verse challenges us to understand that the hope of Jesus only matters if it's delivered, because there is no hope for an undelivered message. And so when we look at what God is doing and allowing us to move to a new campus, we are moving there, not so that we can look great, but so that we can be on the main street of a community that needs the light of Jesus Christ so that they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. We enjoy a grace that thousands of our neighbors do not yet. Perspective is everything. In 2016, I was asked to be a part of a team that traveled to Cuba, and we were going to be training house pastors and how they they could begin to do their ministries a little bit differently and what they hoped would be a little bit better. I was amazed at the effort that these house pastors made to get to a place where they could be trained. They knew that they were living in a country that was ripe for harvest even though the rest of us look around and say, I don't know how difficult that could be. But they did not want to miss an opportunity to be able to speak life to a country that desperately needed it. I have some pictures here of how they came. There was a whole contingent that were packed in the back of a truck in hot weather without air conditioning for four hours to get to the place where they were going to be trained for the next two days. The building was completely full This is just one arm of the church that we were in. To my right was another wing that was completely packed with people that were sitting there. And when there were no more seats left for people to sit, they sat at the altar so that they could at least lean forward around the altar and make notes as they were listening to the things that were taking place there. Not only was the place packed and people at the altar, but the windows were open and there were people that were standing at the windows with their notebooks, listening in to write down everything that they could hear that would help them become better pastors. And when I began to talk to some of them as to what it was that they were hoping to learn, they were saying, we know that our perspective is that our country has hope because Jesus Christ lives. And it doesn't matter what we go through or how difficult it's going to be, if we can be trained to be better, then we want to bring in a greater harvest. That perspective changed me. Because our culture today, as we sit here, we understand that what we are building on that campus looks different than setting up chairs in a driveway of a house church. In our culture, people will not work hard to get where the gospel is being preached. It requires comfortable seating 
It requires pleasant surroundings and plenty of parking. It will take a good live stream production that is well produced, easy to see, and wonderful to hear. This is our mission field, and we know what we need to do to reap the harvest here. And that is what we are doing. There's a book that many of you have read, and I have referred to it in the past. It's called The Gospel with a House Key. It's written by Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you know her name. She has one of the most incredible stories that I've ever heard. She was a professor at Syracuse University of English literature and queer theory. She was a committed lesbian in what she describes as a committed lesbian relationship. And she was a self-described cultural warrior for radical feminism. She wrote a seminal article on queer theory that is still being referenced today by the homosexual movement as being instrumental in understanding it. She was receiving letters from people around the city. She said, I divided them into two piles. There were those letters of people that hated me and those letters of the people that loved me. She said, but I got one letter that wouldn't fit in either pile. It was a local pastor from around here. And he said, I would love to invite you over to dinner at my house. My wife and I would love to be your host. She goes, I didn't know what to do with that letter for a long time, but finally one of my uh, associates said, go, go. It gives you insight into the foolishness of the Christian behavior as it relates to people, and it will really, really be beneficial for you in your next article as we hammer them. And she said, oh, that sounds good. So she showed up, went to dinner at their house on a Sunday evening, and she was overwhelmed by the love that she received. In fact, that one Sunday night turned into two, then a month, then months, until she said, I had joined them every Sunday night for dinner for two years. And at the end of two years, she said, I was so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus through them that I changed my life and I committed myself to Jesus Christ. She said, it was through the love that my heart was changed. You see... Folks, just because we're moving to Main Street doesn't mean that we shouldn't let love have a house key. The gospel needs your house key. You need to be able to have people in your home. I'm reminded of a couple that attended here when they went to Syracuse University, Ida and Amin, students that grew up in Tehran. Many of you know them and shaking your head yes. They came and they would sit. The thing that they described to me, having never been experienced interaction with Christians before, was, number one, this church doesn't look anything like what they have on TV in Tehran. Number two, people seem to really care about us here. And they were loved, and they came months and months and months without ever having accepted Jesus, but they just kept coming back because they were so loved. And on a Wednesday evening... They made an appointment with me, and I remember them sitting in my office, and both of them saying, we're ready to convert. It means that we lose all of our inheritance back home. It means that we may never be able to go back home. It means even that our family's lives may be in jeopardy, but it was the love of the people of Jesus that softened their heart that if this is what Jesus is like, He's better than anything we've ever had in religion because the gospel had a house key. And so when we talk about this being God's house, we're, we're just, we're building on a bigger living room in God's house, and we're bu building on a bigger playroom in God's house in preparation to give the neighborhood a house key. 
so that they can join in with what God is at work doing. Everything that we do, we must do with our neighbors in mind. Rosaria went on to say, So many live and teach their children that every stranger is dangerous, but the real danger is not that some stranger may may introduce you and your family to some sin that will grow in the hearts of your kids, but the real danger is what is really harmful is that they will grow up selfish and isolated from strangers that keep us from the harvest field of God until it's too late. You see, jot this down, Jesus converted you not to quarantine you. He converted you to commission you. Let, let, let that settle in your heart for a minute because there's some depth to that. Jesus converted you not to quarantine you. He converted you to commission you. Any church that gets to the place where it says, us four and no more, we don't want anybody else messing up our, our neighborhood, we don't want anybody else messing up our, our fellowship, that is not a church. That is a club. And we will not be quarantined. This is why our new ministry campus is on Main Street. We want them there. I heard a story, and I I can't remember who it was that told me. Whoever it is, I'm sure will come and remind me, but, you know, I've got an old mind. Um, That recently they were at a grocery store, and somebody said to them, Hey, I heard that Grace Assembly is remodeling that building over on West Genesee Street. Don't you go there? And, And the individual said, Yes, I do. Uh, That's wonderful. We're so proud because I'm a neighbor that lives right there in the neighborhood, and I'm really glad to see the place cleaned up, and it'll be nice to see all that going on. And and the individual said to them, well, you know, we're getting both buildings. The Seventh-day Adventist building, we're trading with them, and that is going to become a center for just our children and our youth and the next gen. And this neighbor said to them, are you kidding me? Any church that loves our children and our youth that much is a church that I'm going to go to. Because it's the gospel with a house key, meets people where they're at. You see, we will invite them there, we will serve them there, we will love them there, we will welcome them their home there, we will have conversations with them there, we will get to know them there, and we will lead them to a hope that can be found in Jesus Christ alone there. It is the essence of Jesus pouring himself out for the hope of others and asks us to pour ourselves out for the hope of a community. So here's what I know. And Cindy was reading something this week, and she mentioned this to me, and so I jotted it down because I thought it was so good. Loving people will never empty the heart, and giving to the Lord's work will never empty the purse. Loving people will never empty the heart, and giving to the Lord's work will never empty the purse. How many of you are parents of more than one child? Most of you. You remember when you found out you were pregnant with your second thinking, oh, no, How are we ever going to love that child as much as we love the first one? And then the child's born. And what you begin to... Now, some of you are going, no, I love my firstborn better. I can't help but what middle children do. <clears throat> and then the child is born, and suddenly you begin to recognize that the more love you have, the more capacity you have to love. I believe it's the same way in giving to the kingdom of God. The more that you invest in the kingdom of God, the more the capacity to invest begins to grow. It's just the way that the Lord has things worked out. Loving people will never empty the heart, and giving to the Lord's work will never empty the purse. There will come a time when every one of us will have to give an account of what we did with the resources that God provided us. 
How many of you have ever saw the movie about Oscar Schindler called Schindler's List? One of the most powerful movies that I ever saw. I want to show you a clip of the end of that movie to remind you of what it was like to invest yourself for the lives of others. He was responsible for saving 1,200 lives of Jews. And inside the inscription of his ring was, if you save one, you've saved the world. When I look at that in light of my own life, I'm so grateful that somebody 
chose to save and lead somebody to Christ in my family that changed the directory of my family and our whole world. This view toward eternity is the perspective that the Holy Spirit wants us to have. The leadership of this church believe in you. If we didn't have faith that God was going to do something, we would have waited till we raised all the money, and then we would try to do it after we got all the money. And in the, in the meantime, thousands of people in Syracuse area would have died and gone to a Christless eternity while we waited. However, our guiding vision statement says that we will pursue every heart with the love of Jesus locally to globally. And being that we are committed to every heart, it means not just the easy ones, but some of the hard ones as well. Because, folks, we were created for this moment and this time and this harvest. That's why we're here. And I do understand that in a project this size and this large, it's easy to lose sight of things. And so let me, just with this final point, bring this down right to home. When we talk about thousands being saved in Syracuse, it's our desire to reach. Who's your one? Who is the one that you pray for? Who's the one that you wrote on a card and stuck on a map up there? What is the name of the person that you can't get off your mind? What is the person that you constantly pray for, whether they're easy or hard, whatever they may be? Who's your one? Because that is your mission field. And when we are investing in this project, we're recognizing that we are reaching somebody's one. It may be somebody from another state whose family member lives here who comes to Jesus Christ here, and they will rejoice there because somebody prayed for their one. Who's your one? Who's your one? Every person in this church has somebody that they're praying for, for opportunities to share your life and faith with. And you will seek and pray every day to build a relationship with them, to bring them to places where they can see the love of Christ, hopefully bringing them into relationship with the family of God here at Grace Assembly. The Scripture says, the fields are white, and we are the laborers, and God is not willing that any should perish. Some of you are saying, well, I need a word from the Lord. Well, listen, I got a whole verse. Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is within your power to act. You and I don't get to choose who deserves it. God lays them on your heart, and with it is within our power to act. That's the powerful direction that God is giving us. Worship team, you could come. I'm going to share a story with you that was as life-transforming to me as anything I've ever been through. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to spend 14 days in India. I got to preach everything from the south to the north. And as we were in a village called Vijiawada, there was one time we were being taken. I was going to be speaking that particular afternoon. And as we got to a place where the car had to stop, there was a knock on my window. And as I turned my head, I was shocked to see a young girl that half the hair of her head had been burned off with acid. Her face had been horribly scarred on one half. And she's yelling to the window, rupees, rupees. And I was reaching into my pocket, and the missionary that I was with grabbed my hand. He says, you can't give her anything. And I said, what do you mean I can't give her anything? He goes, you don't understand. He said, there are so many children that are born in this part of India that the parents can't afford to keep them. So they take these babies, and they sell them to a begging syndicate. 
And the syndicate will take these children and will break their legs and break their arms as, as infants so that they grow in a deformed way. He said, when they reach about the age of 10 or 11 or 12, when they no longer are useful to beg because they no longer can garner sympathy, they're just cast out into the street to die. He said, our missionaries here have an orphanage, and we are actually buying children from the syndicate so that we can put them in the orphanage. You're going to meet some of them this afternoon. That afternoon, I preached to over 400 people that were sitting on a cement slab about being everything that God has created you to be. And at the end of that service, there was a little boy that I don't know how they had broken his legs or hips or damaged his back, but he couldn't stand up straight, and he walked on all fours like an animal. And he came walking up to me with an interpreter, and he said to me, Mr. Speaker, you said today that every one of us are created for something. Do you mind telling me what it is that I've been created for? Folks, I'll tell you in that moment, I... I said, God, if there's ever been a moment in my life that I've needed wisdom, I need it right now. And I knelt down next to that boy and I put my hands on his shoulder and as I'm speaking to him through the interpreter, I said to him, I said, listen, you've been created for a reason and God knows exactly what that reason is and he wants you to ask him what that is and he will reveal it to you because you've got a purpose for being here. That evening we came back to a service I did not speak that evening. Somebody else did. And I was sitting there and I watched as the service began and, and a van pulled up from that orphanage and, and boys began to pile out. And I saw him, that boy get out and you know, he had to be helped to the ground. And then suddenly I saw two other boys. One of them grabbed his pants and the other boy grabbed the arm of the boy who had grabbed his pants. And this boy walked on hands and knees and led them into the church. And at the end of that service, he came trotting up to me and he said, I prayed this afternoon, Lord, what is my purpose? How can I affect the kingdom of God? And he said, the missionaries bought two other boys today from the syndicate. Both of them were blinded by acid. One of them had had his eyes plucked out. And he said, and I was able to lead them to hear about Jesus for the first time tonight. I may never be able to stand up and walk like you, but I'm just the right size to lead people who are blind so that they can hear about Jesus. That changed my life. It messed me up. Because I came back home to a holiday season where abundance flows. And I begin to think, what will it be like on Judgment Day to stand in the presence of the Lord among people who have sacrificed greater than you and I have ever dreamed? Because they had an eternal perspective and could do what they do. So you say, Pastor, for people that have been asking me, does it bother you to ask people for money? Nope. It does not. I would be doing God a disservice if I were ashamed to ask His people to sacrifice what He wants you to give. Because next Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate together. We're going to celebrate. Not everybody's going to give the same thing, but everybody is going to participate because God is not going to leave anybody directionless. And some of you are going, but you don't know. I don't need to know. I'm just asking you to open your eyes and see the fields. Syracuse is white under harvest. We get to live in this moment of time. Folks, we're not out of money. We're just about out of time. 
we are just about out of time. 